0: Section 9 of Emily of New Moon by Lucy M Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Fortune. Section 9. Emily was sure on that first day at school that she would never like it. She must go, she knew, in order to get an education and be ready to earn her own living. But it would always be what Ellen Green solemnly called a cross. Consequently, Emily felt quite astonished when, after going to school a few days, it dawned upon her that she was liking it. To be sure, Miss Brownell did not improve on acquaintance, but the other girls no longer tormented her. Indeed, to her amazement, they seemed suddenly to forget all that had happened and hailed her as one of themselves. She was admitted to the fellowship of the pack and although in some occasional tip she got a dig about baby aprons and murray pride there was no more hostility veiled or open besides emily was quite able to give digs herself as she learned more about the girls and their weak points and she could give them with such merciless lucidity and irony that the others soon learned not to provoke them chestnut curls, whose name was grace wells and the freckled one whose name was Carrie king and jenny strang became quite chummy with her and jenny sent chews of gum and tissue thumb-papers across the aisle instead of giggles emily allowed them all to enter the outer court of her temple of friendship but only rhoda was admitted to the inner shrine as for ilse burnley she did not appear after that first day Ilse, Sir Rhoda said, came to school, or not, just as she liked. Her father never bothered about her. Emily always felt a certain hankering to know more of Ilse, but it did not seem likely to be gratified. Emily was insensibly becoming happy again. Already she felt as if she belonged to this old cradle of her family. She thought a great deal about the old Murrays she liked to picture them revisiting the glimpses of new moon great-grandmother rubbing up her candlesticks and making cheeses great-aunt miriam stealing about looking for her lost treasure homesick great-great-aunt elizabeth stalking about in her bonnet captain george the dashing bronzed sea captain coming home with the spotted shells of the indies stephen the beloved of all smiling from its windows her own mother, dreaming of father. They all seemed as real to her, as if she had known them in life. She still had terrible hours, when she was overwhelmed by grief for her father, and when all the splendours of new moon could not stifle the longing for the shabby little house in the hollow, where they had loved each other so. Then Emily fled to some secret corner, and cried her heart out, emerging with red eyes that always seemed to annoy Aunt Elizabeth aunt elizabeth had become used to having emily at new moon but she had not drawn any nearer to the child this hurt emily always but aunt laura and cousin jimmy loved her and she had saucy cell and rhoda fields creamy with clover soft dark trees against amber skies and the madcap music the wind woman made in the firs behind the barns when she blew straight up from the gulf Her days became vivid and interesting, full of little pleasures and delights, like tiny opening golden buds on the tree of life. If she could only have had her old yellow account book, or some equivalent, she could have been fully content. She missed it next to her father, and its enforced burning was something for which she held Aunt Elizabeth responsible, and for which she felt she could never wholly forgive her. It did not seem possible to get any substitute. As Cousin Jimmy had said, writing paper of any kind was scarce at New Moon. Letters were seldom written, and when they were, a sheet of notepaper sufficed. Emily dared not ask Aunt Elizabeth for any. There were times when she felt she would burst if she couldn't write out some of the things that came to her. She found a certain safety valve in writing on her slate in school. But these scribblings had to be rubbed off sooner or later which left emily with a sense of loss and there was always the danger that miss brownell would see them that emily felt would be unendurable no stranger eyes must behold these sacred productions sometimes she let rhoda read them though rhoda rasped her by giggling over her finest flights emily thought rhoda as near perfection as a human being could be but giggling was her fault but there is a destiny which shapes the ends of young misses who are born with the itch for writing tingling in their baby fingertips, and in the fullness of time this destiny gave to emily the desire of her heart gave it to her too on the very day when she most needed it that was the day the ill-starred day when miss Brownell elected to show the fifth class by example as well as precept, how the bugle's song should be read. Standing on the platform, Miss Brownell, who was not devoid of a superficial elocutionary knack, read those three wonderful verses. Emily, who should have been doing the sum in long division, dropped her pencil and listened entranced. She had never heard the bugle's song before, but now she heard it, and saw it. The rose-red splendour falling on those storied, snowy summits and ruined castles. The lights that never were on land or sea streaming over the lakes. She heard the wild echoes flying through the purple valleys and the misty passes. The mere sound of the words seemed to make an exquisite echo in her soul. And when Miss Brownell came to, horns of Elfland faintly blowing, Emily trembled with delight. She was snatched out of herself. She forgot everything but the magic of that unequalled line. She sprang from her seat, knocking her slate to the floor with a clatter. She rushed up the aisle. She caught Miss Brownell's arm. Oh, teacher, she cried with passionate earnestness. Read that line over again, oh, read that line over again. Miss Brownell thus suddenly halted in her elocutionary display, looked down into a rapt, uplifted face, where great purplish-grey eyes were shining with the radiance of a divine vision. And Miss Brownell was angry, angry with this breach of her strict discipline, angry with this unseemly display of interest in a third-class atom, whose attention should have been focused on long division. Miss Brownell shut her book, and shut her lips and gave emily a resounding slap on her face go right back to your seat and mind your own business emily starr said miss brownell her cold eyes malignant with her fury emily thus dashed to earth moved back to her seat in a daze her smitten cheek was crimson but the wound was in her heart one moment ago in seventh heaven and now this. Pain, humiliation, misunderstanding. She could not bear it. What had she done to deserve it? She had never been slapped in her life before. The degradation and the injustice ate into her soul. She could not cry. This was a grief too deep for tears. She went home from school in a suppressed anguish of bitterness and shame and resentment, an anguish that had no outlet, for she dared not tell her story at new moon. Aunt Elizabeth, she felt sure, would say that Miss Brownell had done quite right, and even Aunt Laura, kind and sweet as she was, would not understand. She would be grieved because Emily had misbehaved in school and had had to be punished. Oh, if I could only tell father all about it, thought Emily. She could not eat any supper. She did not think she would ever be able to eat again. And oh, how she hated that unjust, horrid Miss Brownall. She could never forgive her. Never. If there were only some way in which she could get square with Miss Brownall. Emily, sitting small and pale and quiet at the new moon supper table, was a seething volcano of wounded feeling and misery and pride a pride worse even than the injustice was the sting of humiliation over this thing that had happened she emily bird star on whom no hand had ever before been ungently laid had been slapped like a naughty baby before the whole school who could endure this and live then Destiny stepped in, and drew Aunt Laura to the sitting-room bookcase to look in its lower compartment for a certain letter she wanted to see. She took Emily with her to show her curious old snuff-box that had belonged to Hugh Murray, and in rummaging for it lifted out a big, flat bundle of dusty paper, paper of a deep pink colour, in oddly long and narrow sheets. It's time these old letter bills were burned, she said. What a pile of them! They've been here gathering dust for years, and they are no earthly good. Father once kept the post office here at New Moon, you know, Emily. The mail came only three times a week then, and each day there was one of these long red letter bills, as they were called. Mother always kept them, though when once used they were of no further use. But I'm going to burn them right away. Oh, Aunt Laura, gasped Emily, so torn between desire and fear that she could hardly speak. Oh, don't do that. Give them to me. Please give them to me. Why, child, whatever do you want of them? Oh, Auntie, they have such lovely blank backs for writing on. Please, Aunt Laura, it would be a sin to burn those letterballs. You can have them, dear, only you'd better not let Elizabeth see them. I won't, I won't, breathed Emily. She gathered her precious booty into her arms and fairly ran upstairs, and then upstairs again into the garret, where she already had her favourite haunt, in which her uncomfortable habit of thinking of things thousands of miles away could not vex Aunt Elizabeth. This was the quiet corner of the dormer window, where shadows always moved about softly and swingingly, and beautiful mosaics patterned the bare floor. From it, one could see over the treetops, right down to the Blair Water. The walls were hung around with great bundles of soft, fluffy rolls, all ready for spinning, and hanks of untwisted yarn. Sometimes Aunt Laura spun on the great wheel at the other end of the garret, and Emily loved the whir of it. In the recess of the dormer window, she crouched. Breathlessly, she selected a letter bowl and extracted a lead pencil from her pocket. An old sheet of cardboard served as a desk. She began to write feverishly. End of section 9. Recording by Leanne Fortune